You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. ...which is continuing on, Jesus changing lives, changing societies, changing families uh, by His power. We get to be part of that as well. In the month of May, we're going to be starting a new series. We're finishing up Acts in the next couple weeks. In May, we're starting a new series, which is going to be called The Pursuit of Happiness. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 23 and continue our study here. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who is living, a God who is active, Lord, a God who is providentially at work in the world. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks to us. And this morning we come to you expectant to hear from you, Lord, expecting to hear a fresh word, a living word from your heart to us. And we pray that, Lord, you would give us ears to hear that. We pray that you would help us to put these things that we read about in your word, to apply them to our lives and put them into practice, that they might bear much good fruit for your glory and for our good. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I ran across a story in uh, the news, it's actually from a couple of years ago, some of you might remember it, but here's a story, in the city of Krasnoyarsk in Russia, there was a woman who had just purchased a cake for a special occasion, they were having a party, and she was walking home from the bakery with her cake, and a man approached her on the street and mugged her basically, stole the cake right out of her hands, but then instead of running away with the cake... The man stood there next to the woman and asked her kindly and politely, according to the woman's report, he was very kind, very polite, and he asked her if she wouldn't mind calling the police and reporting what he had just done. Now, of course, she was dumbfounded by this. Why would he want her to do that? Or, sorry, why would she want him, or, yeah, why would he want her to do that? And the man, uh, she asked the man, why? What's this all about? And the man said, well, because I'm on parole and I want to go back to jail. I I just got out of jail and I want to go back. So the woman obliged, she called the police, the police showed up, and they found this man just chit-chatting with the woman, holding the cake which he had stolen. The man was arrested, Uh, he had broken his parole by doing this, they ran his record. He had just been released from 12 years in prison, and I guess he couldn't stand the thought of life on the outside. And so he committed this crime, and by becoming a cake thief, he broke his parole, he was put back in jail for three more years, and the woman got her cake back. Pretty crazy story. Uh, Here in the final chapters of the book of Acts, similarly, we are seeing the Apostle Paul in jail. He is in prison right now, but unlike the cake thief, Paul hadn't actually done anything wrong. See, this all began when Paul came to Jerusalem to bring a gift of financial support, financial aid to the Christians who lived there in Jerusalem. Paul was a well-known person uh, throughout the Roman Empire at this time. He was well-known especially because he had been formerly a prominent Jewish leader, but then he had become a Christian. He had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He had put his faith in Jesus. And not only did he become a Christian, but he became very active in spreading Christianity throughout the world as a pastor and as a missionary. And there were some people who did not like that. They wanted to see Paul silenced and uh, stopped. They wanted to see Paul go down. And so when Paul came to Jerusalem, some people recognized him and they stirred up a riot against him by accusing Paul of trying to defile the Jewish temple. Now that wasn't true, but when people heard these accusations, it didn't matter if they were true or not, people uh, got very upset just by hearing these accusations and they started a riot and 
as a result of this, Paul was almost killed. The Roman military had to come in and break this riot up, and then they took Paul into custody trying to figure out, okay, what actually happened? Did Paul actually do anything wrong? So we pick up the story here, the final chapters of the book of Acts, we're seeing a series of court proceedings, a series of trials in which Paul is being brought before different authorities and put on trial for these charges that were made against him. The first of these trials we already saw in a previous study where Paul was on trial before the Jewish religious council and that trial resulted in a mistrial because the, the members of the council started fighting with each other about something that Paul had said. So now Paul is being held in custody and he's awaiting another trial. The title of today's message is God's Providence in Paul's Trials. And here's what we're going to see in this section, three things. First of all, we're going to see the invisible hand of God. Secondly, we're going to talk about the ingredients that make a cake. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the eternal peril of procrastination. So the invisible hand of God, the ingredients which make the cake, and the eternal peril of procrastination. Let's begin in Acts chapter 23, reading from verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we're ready to kill him before he comes near. So if it wasn't bad enough to be in jail for something you didn't do, imagine this. There's a group of 40 assassins who have targeted you for assassination. I don't know what kind of week you had this past week, but I doubt that it was quite this bad, right? Wrongfully imprisoned and targeted for assassination by 40 assassins. Paul's having a rough time. Let's continue and see what happens. Now the son of Paul's sisters, that's Paul's nephew, heard of this ambush and he went and entered the barracks where Paul was being held and told Paul. Paul called out to one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as if they're going to inquire more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. They have bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him and now they're waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. So here's the plan. The chief priests, again, they had a mistrial in their first trial. So now the plan is they're going to tell the Roman officials who are holding Paul in custody that they want to retry Paul. So they should bring Paul down to the Jewish council. And while he's in transit, these 40 guys are going to ambush him and they're going to kill him. But it just so happens, right, like coincidence of all coincidences, Paul's sister's son, so Paul's nephew, somehow catches word of this plan. He, he hears about it. Now, what a coincidence, right? I mean, what are the chances that Paul's nephew would just happen to be in the right place at just the right time so that he would find out about this plot to kill Paul, and he's able to alert Paul and save his life? This is one of the major themes in the book of Acts, actually. This is our first point also, the invisible hand of God. The invisible hand of God at work in the world and in our lives individually. Metaphorically, you could put it this way. God has two hands with which he works. The one hand is the seen hand, the visible hand of miracle, 
And the other is the invisible hand of providence. Now, we've seen both of these at work throughout the book of Acts. There have been obvious miracles. There was a lame man who was healed and he could walk again. On the day of Pentecost, people spoke in languages they had never learned before. In Paul's life, there have been miracles. He was in jail in Philippi and an earthquake happened, which just happened to open the doors of the prison. See, uh, the thing is there have been visible miracles, but even more There have been, throughout the book of Acts, we have seen the invisible hand of God's providence working behind the scenes, so to say, in the details of life, which we have no control over. Things like people who just happen to be in the right place at the right time, like Paul's nephew here. In your life, too, you need to know this. God is providential. God determines things that you have no control over, places like Things like where you will be born and and who your parents will be and what kind of people you will cross paths with in your life and what kind of opportunities will present themselves to you. God gives you talents. He gives you experiences. And all these things are the invisible hand of God at work subtly and quietly. But they are the work of God nonetheless. And they are no less profound and powerful than the miraculous seen hand of God. Providence means that God rules over all creation. It means that he rules over history. We still have freedom. We make choices for better or for worse. But the point of providence is that God is above all of it. He's actively working everything out as he desires because he rules over all things. In fact, this is the incredible thing. God is even able to use bad things. God is even able to use evil things for his purposes and for his glory and for our good. See, providence is exactly what Paul the Apostle was talking about when he wrote his letter to the Romans and said in Romans chapter 8, he said, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What that verse is talking about is providence. And when you really get that, when you really understand what providence is, when it really sinks in that God is above all things and that he's providentially at work in the world and in our lives, even when we don't see it, working out his plans and his purposes, it it completely gives you a, a different perspective on your life. It gives you a different perspective on the things that happen to you. You see, providence means that God is actively involved in what goes on in this world and in our lives. Providence means that things don't just happen by random chance, but that God ordains the events of our lives according to his plan. Now, on the other hand, providence doesn't mean fatalism. It doesn't mean that your decisions and your choices don't matter. Your choices matter very much. So the Bible teaches neither chance nor fate. The Bible teaches that there's a providential God who is actively involved in the happenings of this world and in our lives. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with Paul's nephew, who just happens to be in the right place at the right time, finds out about this plot, and he's able to alert Paul and save his life. It's one of these little miracles that happen. It's the invisible hand of God providentially at work, and we're going to see that even more as we go through this section, the invisible hand of God at work, even in the midst of Paul's trials. And I think that on a personal level, we have to, we must take comfort in this great promise of God's providence in our lives. That whatever you may face, you can be confident that God is actively working all things for good according to his plan and purpose for your life and ultimately for the world. So let's continue on. Verse 23. So then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. 
And then he's going to write a letter in the next verse. But here's the thing. Paul is now getting an escort. He's getting a military escort out of Jerusalem, surrounded by soldiers to make sure that nothing happens to him. Earlier in this chapter, in our last study, what we saw is this, that Paul had a vision in the night in which God told him he wasn't going to die in Jerusalem, that he was going to preach the gospel one day in Rome. And so here we see the invisible hand of God getting Paul out of danger in Jerusalem with a full military escort because Paul's nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Maybe some of you have experienced similar things. God's providence in your life. God ordaining the details of your life and working things out according to his plan. So he wrote a letter to this effect, verse 25. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews. He was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge which they were accusing him of, I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused with, uh, about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So Claudius Lysias, he's the Roman commander who's been taking care of Paul up until now. He realizes at this point that the Jewish leaders are really just out to get Paul. They, they, uh, Paul hasn't broken any laws, but they want to get him because they don't like the fact that he's a Christian. They don't like the fact that he's a pastor or a missionary, so they want to shut him down. But since Paul has, uh, has not broken any laws, but he was arrested, that means that Paul has to be exonerated now through the proper legal channels. And so Claudius sends Paul to the governor of the province, whose name is Felix, who's based in Caesarea, which is on the seaside. And he sends a letter stating that, hey, look, Paul hasn't broken any laws. This should be just kind of a formality. You need to have a trial to exonerate him, so you should do that. That's what's been going to happen now as we move forward to chapter 24. Paul is going to face his next trial, his trial before Felix. And again, this should just be an open and shut case, right? Uh, Paul didn't do anything wrong. He's got this letter from the Roman commander who was there saying, hey, this guy didn't do anything wrong. Unfortunately, though, it's not going to go that easily for Paul. Let's continue from verse 1 of chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So this man, Tertullus, uh, he is a lawyer. Some of the translations actually say that. He's a lawyer. Now, what's interesting, Tertullus is not a Jewish name, is a very Roman name. And what that tells us is that Tertullus was a big gun, kind of high-paid lawyer. Uh, he was a lawyer who was hired by the Jewish religious council to help them get the conviction against Paul, which they wanted to get. Kind of like in our day, right? We have these celebrity lawyers, kind of like your Johnny Cochran's and your Robert Shapiro, like if the glove don't fit, we must acquit type of thing, if you remember that. See, this is who Tertullus was. You pay him enough money and he'll get you whatever uh, verdict you want to get. So Paul, of course, on the other hand, they've got this high-paid big gun lawyer. Paul has no legal counsel, no representation. He He's defending himself. Uh, let's, let's see how this begins. Verse 2. When they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying this. Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this 
with all gratitude. If you'd allow me to paraphrase this for you, it is, uh, you could put it this way. Wah, 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 right? This is just this uh, shameful flattery. He's just laying it on thick, just trying to butter this guy up. He's like, oh, Felix, you know, you're just the best governor who's ever been. I mean, you're just the greatest. You're just so awesome, and we just, we just think you're the best. You're just so awesome. We don't even know how you do it. You're just amazing, right? You'd think that at this point, Felix would just stop him and be like, come on, man. I mean, you think I don't see what you're doing? You're just uh, trying to get on my good side. You're flattering me, and it's not going to work. But that's not what Felix does. Uh, Perhaps it's because Tertullus knew enough about Felix to know that Felix would, this would be music to his ears. He would love this flattery. Because here's what history tells us about this man, Antonius Felix. He had a pauper to prince type of story. He was the very first Roman official who went from being a slave to getting his freedom and then becoming a ruler of the people. He was born a slave. He gained his freedom and through uh, all kinds of, you know, backroom deals and backstabbing and politicking and intrigue, he had worked his way up to this high position. He was known as being a man of uh, bad morals and a brutal person. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus writes about Felix, and this is what he says. He says, Felix was a master of cruelty. He was a master of lust who exercised the powers of a king with the mentality of a slave. In other words, you can take the pig out of the mud, but at the end of the day, you still got a pig on your hands, right? That's how it was with Felix. He was a person of crude character, even though he now had this high position. And again, Tacitus, that Roman historian, he says this about Felix going on. He indulged, his every, uh, he indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. In other words, he was not a good guy. Felix hadn't, hadn't brought peace and prosperity to Judea as, you know, Tertullus is just heaping all this flattery on him, but it wasn't true. He hadn't brought peace and prosperity to Judea. Rather, he was a harsh ruler who was known for using violence to suppress the people. He was known for crucifying anyone who he even suspected of having anti-Roman sentiments. So Felix was not a great person, uh, but because of his background as a former slave, he has this inferiority complex. And when Tertullus comes just heaping all this flattery on him, you know, he just eats it up. You know, he's like, oh, what do you, do you got more? I'll take anything you got. The book of Proverbs says that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You see, there's a difference between flattery and encouragement. There's a difference between flattery and compliments. Encouragement and compliments, those are good things. In fact, encouragement is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So you should never hold back encouragement from other people. Uh, that's something God wants you to do is encourage people. You should encourage people. You should compliment people. But flattery is when you compliment someone in an attempt to manipulate them. See, and that's not good. That's what Tertullus is doing here. Let's continue from verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will find, him, uh, find out from him about everything of which we accuse." 
The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. So Tertullus, what he's doing, he's trying to make Paul out to be a person who is politically dangerous. Tertullus knows that Felix is particularly sensitive to anybody who is uh, anti-Roman at all. So what he's trying to do is paint this picture of Paul, that he's a ringleader of a dangerous sect that is politically dangerous. They're probably going to you know, try and uh, rebel against Rome. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerly make my defense. So Paul doesn't uh, flatter him. He just says, you know, he says something nice, but it's not flattering. He just kind of states the fact. Hey, I know you're not new on the block. I know when you know what you're doing, so I'm glad to present my case to you. You can verify that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you the things that they're bringing uh, against me. He says, look, there's just no evidence. These people are just saying this. They have no evidence to back it up. Verse 14. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Tertullus referred to Christianity as the sect of the Nazarenes, right? A very disparaging term. But Paul, he refers to Christianity as the way. The way, by the way, is the name that the early Christians called Christianity before Christianity was called Christianity. It was called the way. The way also carries with it this great connotation that Christian belief, following Jesus, it isn't just a set of beliefs that you nod your head to and agree to. It is a way of living. It is a way of walking. It is a way of life. And so he points out, Paul does, he says, look, all of my faith hinges on one belief, the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he says, you know what? This is something that the Jewish people should have no problem accepting or believing because belief in the Messiah, belief in the resurrection of the dead, these are things which are taught in the Jewish scriptures. These are things which Jewish people believe in. All of the scriptures, they tell one grand story, the story of how God is redeeming a world which has been broken by sin. He's restoring all things through the Savior, through the Messiah, and Paul is saying, look, not only did I not do anything wrong, But by following Jesus, I'm actually being more consistent with Jewish beliefs than these guys are. He says, I'm I'm actually being more Jewish than these guys who, who say that they're Jewish. Verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without a crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you to make accusations should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So, Paul has cleared away the smoke. He's shown there's no real case here. These people are just out to get him because he's a Christian. This should really just be an open and shut case, kind of a formality. The case should be dismissed. This is really easy. Paul should be released. At least that's what should have happened. But unfortunately, that's not what did happen. Read with me from verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. 
Felix had an accurate knowledge of Christianity. That's interesting. Not surprising because he was the governor of the province. There were a lot of Christians in the province. But in other words, he understands what's going on right here. He understands that this is a theological disagreement about Jesus. That these people are just out to get Paul because they disagree with him theologically about Jesus. And so Paul hasn't really committed a crime. And yet, he puts off making a decision. He says, well, I'm going to wait until Claudius Lysias comes down, and then I'll discuss it with him, and then I'll make a decision. But that's not really what's going on here, is it? And we know that because, remember, when, when Claudius Lysias sent Paul to Felix, he sent him with a letter that said, hey, here's my opinion about this guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. You should let him go. So in other words, Felix already knows what Claudius Lysias thinks. There's nothing to discuss. So what is going on here? Here's what's going on. Felix knows what the right decision is. He knows what he should do. He knows what the right thing to do is. But he knows that if he does it, if he lets Paul go, it's going to be very politically unpopular for him amongst the Jews. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be unpopular. So what does he do? He does nothing. This is a cowardly dodge on his part. In the end, Felix will keep on procrastinating with this and putting this off and putting this off for two years until his term as governor is up and someone else becomes governor. So for two years, Paul is in jail. He's not in a dungeon. People can come visit him. He's kind of kept in a holding cell, but he's still, he's locked up uh, for two years. And for what? Because Felix is too much of a coward to do the right thing and pronounce Paul innocent of the charges. He doesn't pronounce him guilty. He doesn't even pronounce him not guilty. He just does nothing. And so Paul's life, because of this, is now on hold for two years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine sitting in a holding cell at the police station for two years? Just wasting your life, sitting in a jail cell for something you didn't even do just because the judge was too much of a coward to make the right call. Now, see, what we have been talking during this study about, Paul, about God's providence in Paul's trials. That's our title. The invisible hand of God at work in Paul's life. But let me ask you, what about this? Where is God in this? How is this even fair? Where is God in all of this? This is a terrible injustice. Here's Felix. He's a terrible guy, a wicked man, and he's free doing whatever he wants with immunity. And Paul, here's a guy who was trying to do good and here he is locked up just because Felix doesn't want to be unpopular. Where is God in all of that? And this brings us to the next important thing which we see in this section, and that is the ingredients that make the cake. Okay, the ingredients that make the cake. Let me just talk about cake for a minute. I like cake. I, I assume that you do too, unless you're gluten-free. I've had gluten-free cake. It tastes terrible. So probably you gluten-free people are like, no, I don't even like cake. It tastes gross. Well, that's because you're gluten-free. You should eat the real cake. It's delicious. But here's the thing, if you've ever made a cake, you know that the individual ingredients that go into making the cake, most of them don't taste very good on their own, do they? Right? The individual ingredients are pretty gross by themselves. So I was looking at a recipe for a cake the other day. It's a lemon cake. I want to read a bit of it to you. Here's the recipe. A half pound of butter at room temperature. Delicious. Uh, two and a half cups of sugar. Four large eggs, raw, room temperature, yum, right? A third cup of grated lemon peel, bitter. Three cups of flour, a half teaspoon of baking soda, a half teaspoon of baking powder, one teaspoon of salt, three quarters cup lemon juice, and three quarters cup buttermilk, which is just rotten milk. That's all that is, right? Now, now think about this. 
on their own, those things do not taste good, do they? They taste really gross. Like, how many of you want to eat four raw eggs at room temperature? Yum, right? Or how about a third of a cup of a lemon peel? How does that taste on its own? Well, it's terribly bitter. Or how about three cups of flour? Just think about just down in three cups of flour. That, it doesn't taste good at all. It's hard to swallow. Now, there are a few sweet things in there. The buttermilk might be okay, and the sugar was probably very sweet. But how many of us want to eat a spoonful of salt, right? How many of us want to eat a spoonful of baking soda? Now, but see, there are some ingredients even. I don't even know what they are. I don't even know what they do. Like, for example, what, is, what, even, what even is cream of tartare? And if it's a cream, why does it come in a jar as a powder? I don't get it. It doesn't even make any sense, right? What do you, what do you even use that for? But when you take all of these ingredients and you follow the recipe and each ingredient in the right proportion at the right time, these things which are bitter and hard to swallow on their own, they're terrible on their own, when they get worked together according to the master plan, the result is something wonderful. Now, do you remember that verse that we talked about just a minute ago? We know that in all things God is causing, or sorry, we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You, say, you see, in the same way that many of the ingredients which go into the cake don't taste good on their own, there are plenty of things that God in his providence allows into our lives which on their own are not desirable. They're not great. Like, who wants to have 40 assassins plotting to kill you? Who wants to be accused of a crime you didn't commit? Who would want to be wrongfully imprisoned for two years just because the judge is afraid to do the right thing? You see, on their own, these are terrible things. It's like a cup of lemon peel, right? It's bitter. It's like three cups of flour. It's hard to swallow. But these are the ingredients that make a cake. Without these ingredients, you're not going to have a cake. And as a result, though, of, of all these different ingredients, which on their own are bitter and hard to swallow, but now Paul is getting the opportunity, look at the big picture, he's getting the opportunity to speak to rulers and councils and kings and even to Caesar himself and tell them about Jesus. You take a step back and you look at that and you say, well, that's awesome, that's amazing, that's wonderful, that's glorious. Let me tell you this, it probably didn't feel very amazing and glorious and wonderful for Paul when he's sitting in a jail cell that day. He's not thinking, this is great. He's thinking, I'm frustrated. He's wondering, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? I gave you my life, and this is what I get in return. You're just letting the years of my life pass me by while I sit in this jail cell doing nothing. Here's my point. In those moments, in the details, it wasn't glorious. It wasn't great. It was like the ingredients that make the cake. On their own, they're not very great at all. They don't taste good. But all those ingredients put together, work together. They're necessary to make the cake. And the master baker takes each ingredient in the right proportion in the right time and he makes it something wonderful. See, there's one more part to making a cake though, isn't there? Do you know what it is? It's the heat. You mix all those things together and then you go in for 350 degrees for 20 minutes. And all that heat, you know what it does? It causes those things which are part of the mix, it causes some of them to activate it causes some of them to take effect. Without the heat, they're not going to take effect. You see, we can see God's providence in Paul's trials. But in the moment, as Paul's going through each of these things, he couldn't see it yet. He couldn't see what God was doing or what's, what, what God's making out of all of this. And it reminds me of another man. Another man who was also a victim of injustice. He also stood before a Roman governor 
and he also, the Roman governor also chose popularity in his case with the people rather than doing the right thing and exonerating an innocent man. That governor's name was Pontius Pilate. He was Felix's predecessor. And that man's name was Jesus. And he too, he faced things which on their own were bitter and they were difficult to swallow. He came to his own people, but his own people rejected him. The very people he created, the ones he loved so much, the ones he watched over, the ones he listened to their prayers, the ones he had come to save as their Messiah, he came to them and they rejected him. What a bitter pill to swallow. He was beaten physically. And as he hung on the cross, God the Father treated him as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed, although in fact he had committed none of them. And he cried out in the dark in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are terrible things. You know, they're terrible things. But yet each one of those things was an essential ingredient for something wonderful. Something so wonderful, in fact, that the thought of what was to come was what enabled Jesus to endure all of those terrible things. It was the joy of knowing what was going to happen through those things, that Jesus would be saving you and me. He would be redeeming you. Those terrible things that he went through were necessary for our salvation. God's plan for Jesus included many dark and difficult moments. God's plan for Paul included many dark and difficult moments. And it's very possible that God's plan for your life may include some dark and difficult moments, some things that are bitter, some things that are hard to swallow. But the promise of God is that he is providentially working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. See, the hope of the gospel is that because Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose from the dead, that through him too, though we die in the flesh, we will live eternity, eternally. And that puts everything in perspective. I don't know if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to read you one thing that C.S. Lewis says about eternity. It's at the very end. It's the last paragraph of the very last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. This is what C.S. Lewis says about eternal life. He says, when we get to the end of this life, we will find that all of this, everything that we've been living, it was only but the title and the cover page. And then we will begin living out the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. See, if this life is only but the title and the cover page of the story which goes on forever, well, that frees me up to say, Lord, let this life of mine, let it be like a penny in your pocket. You can spend it where and however you please, however it pleases you. Just take my life and use it for whatever you want, anything. I will trust in your providence. I'll trust that you're working out your plan, even when the individual elements are bitter and hard to swallow. I will trust that you are going to work all of it together for good. So there's one more matter before we close, and that's this, the eternal peril of procrastination. Not only did Felix procrastinate in making a judgment about Paul's case, he procrastinated in another way too. Um, Let's read in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Felix, we already read that he he was pretty knowledgeable about Christianity. Uh, He was also interested in Christianity. He wanted to know more. And at times it says he would send for Paul to come to him and talk to him and his wife, Drusilla, about the gospel. 
And, and this, he was interested. He was intrigued. But see, the problem is it never went beyond that. Felix never took that step of actually putting his faith and his trust in Jesus and following him. Now, why not? Why would he be so interested but never take the step of faith? Well, the next verse actually gives us some insight into that. Let's read verse 25. As he reasoned, this is Paul, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for now. When I get the opportunity, I will summon you. What's going on here? We know from historical sources that this woman, Drusilla, at this time she was 19 years old. She was the daughter of the Herod dynasty who had, you know, these are the people who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, killed John the Baptist. They're a bunch of bad people. So that's her background, her family background. She's a daughter of the Herod dynasty. And the historian uh, Josephus writes that Drusilla was exceedingly beautiful. She was just a teenager, but when Felix met her, she was actually married to another man, and he pursued her anyway, and he, he was able to convince her to leave her husband for him. And they moved in together, and eventually she became his third wife. So it's interesting with that background that these guys invited Paul to come in and talk to them about Jesus. And so Paul comes in, and here's what he wants to talk about. He says, okay, we'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about righteousness. We'll talk about self-control, which you apparently have none of. And we'll talk about the judgment to come, which is something you should really think about, right? So Paul's got spunk. He's got chutzpah, right? He's bold. And he tells this couple, he says, Hey, guys, yeah, we can talk about Jesus. Let's begin with this. You guys are like in psycho-huge sin, right? right? Like, and they're like, what do you mean we're in sin? And he says, well, you're, you're controlled by your passions. It seems like everything you, you're, you feel like doing, you, your flesh tells you to do, you just do it. And they say, well, yeah, so what's wrong with that? And he says, well, that's called sin. You're missing the mark. You're missing the mark before God. You're living in contradiction to how God wants you to live. And the real problem, Felix, the real problem, Drusilla, is that sin has the price tag of death. The wages of sin is death. And there is a resurrection unto life, but there is also a resurrection unto judgment. You see, there's life and there's salvation in Jesus Christ, but apart from him, so Paul's reasoning with them about these subjects. He's probably saying, guys, because of what Jesus did, you understand, Felix, you're a judge. You know how this works. Because of what Jesus did, he paid the price for our sin before God. And whoever puts their faith in him, God pronounces him righteous and holy before him. But apart from Jesus, you've got to stand on your own and face the fire for your own sins. See, as Paul was sharing these things, it says that Felix became alarmed. One translation says that he trembled. He was very worried. When Paul starts talking about the judgment to come, starts talking about sin, it, it bothered him. See, he realizes what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that he needs to get his life right with God. He needs to make a decision. Would he give his life to Jesus and receive forgiveness and grace and salvation, or would he reject that and choose rather to face the judgment of God? See, rather than making a decision, once again, Felix does what it seems that he did a lot. He did nothing. He put it off. He procrastinated. He said, I don't want to make a decision right now. Let's, uh, let's talk about this another time. I'll call for you later. See, Felix knew that what Paul was saying was right, but he didn't have the courage to make the decision which he knew was the right decision to make. See, many people respond to the gospel in the same way that Felix responded to it. They say, yeah, I know. I know that I should get right with God. I know, but not today. 
just not today. You know, I'll do it later, another day, another time when it's more convenient, when I'm ready for it. I want to think it over. Just give me some time. You know, or maybe they say, I, I'm young. I've got some stuff I want to do first. I want to sow my wild oats. I want to experience some things. And maybe when I'm older, then I'll get right with God. Then, then I'll be really into it. You know, when I'm older, someday I'll do what God wants me to do. The problem is, the case with Felix here and the case with many people, someday never comes. It's been said that procrastination is the thief of time, but what's even more, procrastination is the thief of souls. See, not to choose is a choice. Not to decide is a decision. To do nothing is absolutely something. That's something you're doing. That's why God's word says the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let me tell you this, if God is tugging on your heart today, telling you that you need to get right with him, don't put it off. Don't do what Felix did. There will never be a better time than today. Because you know what happens? Every time you say no to God, it makes it a little bit more difficult to say yes next time. The last few verses of this chapter, they show us that Felix never got around to calling Paul back and, and doing this thing. That someday that he talked about, someday I'll get right with God. Someday, Paul, I'll call you back. We'll do this thing. I'll get right with God. I'll follow Jesus. But not today. The problem is that someday never came. And I'm wondering if there's anyone listening to this right now who would say, I know what I need to do. I know what God wants me to do. I know that I need to get right with God, but I'm, I'm kind of worried about what other people might think if I do that. Or, or maybe I'm nervous about the things that I might have to give up or the things that will change in my life if I really give my life over to God. I would encourage you today. Look to him. Look to him who gave up everything for you. Jesus, look to him who traded comfort for discomfort. Look to him who traded glory for scorn. Look to him who traded heaven for a cross. Look to him and understand that's how serious of a matter this is. And look to him and understand that's how great his love for you is. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice calling to you today, don't harden your heart. Don't do what Felix did. Rather, receive the gospel today. Embrace him who stands with open arms ready to embrace you. Don't put it off another day. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hope of the gospel. We thank you for the promise of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, that though you had everything, though we deserved judgment, Lord, you came to save us out of your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray for anybody here today who kind of feels like Felix. They've been kind of putting it off, putting off the decision. They know what you want them to do, Lord. They know what the right thing to do is, but they're not sure they have the courage to do it. Lord, today I pray that they would take that step of faith and say, yes, Lord, my life, I give it to you. I hold nothing back. All for you, Jesus. And I choose to live for you today. Thank you for taking my sin. I give you my life. We pray that today corporately as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.